0: Good morning. Somebody told me since Mark was the shortest account of the resurrection, maybe I would preach quick, so who knows? Anyway, thanks for the comment. Uh, Thanks to Zach, by the way, for uh, stepping in for us. You know, Zach came back, and at the time he came back, some of our other people were like, we need a break. So Zach agreed to take over during this Easter season, so he kind of got baptized by fire. So... uh, thankful that he's back now and for their family. Mark chapter 15, if you will, this morning, we're in a short series on the resurrection reflections. We're taking each gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the way up through the resurrection, looking at their different accounts. And now today we're in Mark, which is probably one of the most problematic endings in the Bible, okay? I'll be talking about that in just a moment. But I want to give you a couple of just initial thoughts before we get into this because there's a textual problem in Mark that is one of the major problems in the New Testament. A lot of times people skip it or they argue one side or another and they don't tell people about the problem and then when our kids go somewhere like to a college or something they present a textual problem and they don't tell them how to answer that problem and then the kids whole life is shattered their trust in God's Word. So Where should we deal with it? Right here, okay? We're not afraid of it. We just say it how it is and let it land where it be. But we'll talk about that this morning. But who is Mark, John Mark? Tom Constable, who wrote several commentaries, said this. Papias, who was... That's not a a pie, by the way. That's a church father way back in the early, early centuries. He quoted the elder that was probably the Apostle John who said the following things about the gospel. Here's what he said. Mark wrote it, though he was not a disciple of Jesus during Jesus' ministry or an eyewitness of Jesus' actual ministry. So Mark is not an apostle. He was not an eyewitness. This is one of the only gospel accounts we have of someone who wrote who was not an eyewitness. Now, by the way, Luke wasn't either. So Matthew was, John was, but when you get to Mark and Luke, they didn't actually walk around with Jesus. They weren't apostles. They didn't see it. So how did they know all these intimate details? Well, let's keep on reading. He accompanied the apostle Peter and listened to his preaching. And he based his gospel on the eyewitness account and the spoken ministry of Peter. So most people say that John Mark, who wrote this book, was a protege or a follower of the Apostle Peter, and that's how he got all of his information. Okay, we're going to talk about him a little bit more in just a moment, but this is just some initial information. Now, what's interesting is when you look at Mark's gospel and you read it, the 16 chapters, the material focuses primarily on one issue, and that is suffering. And there was a reason for that because most people believe Mark wrote this gospel to the Romans, the Gentiles, who were out of the land of Israel that were suffering for trusting in Jesus. So naturally, Mark would want to write something that would be applicable to his generation. People were suffering persecution because they were Christians, and Mark's basically saying Jesus suffered too. And he endured. So what should you do as a believer? You should endure as well. So about one-third of Mark deals with suffering as a believer. Now, by the way, are you? Maybe you're in a position somewhere when you take a stand for something that's right. You suffer for it. Well, what should you do? Just quit? No. Mark would say, push on. Don't stop. Just because you're persecuted... Dig in. Be faithful. And so his gospel begins, by the way, if you're back in chapter 1, just look there and I'll teach you just a couple of little things, okay? Did you know Mark gives no biographical account? In other words, no genealogy of where Jesus came from. Now, if you read Matthew, what does he do? He starts all the way back to Abraham. I told you this last week. True or false? Matthew starts with the covenants because the gospel was preached to the nation of Israel to present Jesus as a king. Boy, that was a long one, wasn't it? Just, just say true. True. So it was written to the Jews. Luke also writes a biography in the, in the way, not a biography. He, he writes a genealogy, but he ties it back to who? Adam. Why does Matthew start with Abraham? Because he's writing to the Jews. Why does Luke start with Adam? Because he's writing to mankind in general. Why does Mark just skip it? Why? In the same way as if someone were writing to me and you today. You know, most people, most Americans do not care about their heritage. Did you know that? Most Romans didn't either. It didn't matter to them who their great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was or anything else. They didn't care. All that mattered was about the common, what's going on today. Mark wrote to Romans who really could have cared less about genealogy. And so he gets right to the point. He's, he opens his, his gospel this way. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it was written in Isaiah the prophet, out of the wilderness. So no genealogy. And this would have grabbed a Gentile's attention. And he uses the word immediately 41 times in his gospel. I mean, boom, 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 boom. You know, he's, he's in social media here, Twitter land. Just tweet, tweet, tweet. Always catching somebody's attention. So here you have this idea about him beginning the gospel with a messenger announcing what God was doing. And he ends it with a messenger announcing what God did. So he got right to the point. And you say, okay, good, get to the point. All right, here we go. Mark chapter 15, I'm going to go back and pick up part of the crucifixion narrative and read all the way through. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani?" which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you remember Matthew last week, Matthew said the same thing, right? So we have the same saying in Mark and Matthew. All right, hold on to that. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. Now notice a couple of differences here. Mark mentions the name of the third woman. Matthew didn't. There's a reason for that. Let's go on. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem who were unnamed. And when evening had come, since it was the day of the preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, why would he have to explain that? Because they were Gentiles. Anybody who was a Jew would have known the day of preparation was the day before the Sabbath, but Gentile readers here. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. Uh, He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples, and Peter, notice, and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I'm going to stop reading right there for just a moment. Now, a couple of little differences here. and just pointing this out to you, okay? Why does Mark not mention the earthquake that Matthew mentions in his gospel? If you remember last week, there was a great earthquake. The angel descended, rolled the stone away. Mark now does not mention the great earthquake. If I was writing this, I probably would have mentioned the earthquake. Would you? Because, I mean, that would be something pretty interesting. Why do you think Mark did not write it? Well, once again, if we were in a class, we would have some fun here. But I'll just give you the answer. Probably it's because the audience he was writing to over in Italy or somewhere in in the Rome area... Would have, they wouldn't have known that. There was no news feed. There was no Fox News. I mean, it, it really didn't make any difference to him. So he was getting to the point. The stone was moved, and there was this supernatural being who was there, and he had risen. Bottom line, right to the point. And so Mark was just cutting through all the fat, getting right to the issue. Now, if you have a translation... If you look down at the end of verse 8, most good translations will have a footnote here. If you have a study Bible, I will guarantee you there's a footnote here. And what it says is this. Verses 9 all the way down through 20 is not found in some of the, in, in the older manuscripts. So now we're getting into a textual issue. And the, the big question is, does this, verses 9 through 20 belong in the, in the text of Scripture, or does it not? Now, let me just get right to the summary. You and I are not going to solve this issue. There have been people who have given their lives to arguing whether this does or does not belong. There are people who point out evidence that if it were original, it would have been found in the oldest manuscripts, because surely when you find the oldest manuscripts and it's left blank, It should be there. You find others on the other side who find manuscripts from the 1300s who have this ending in all of those majority texts. And so this side's going to argue, well, no wonder somebody added this later and then the majority got it and circulated it and it was spread more, so you're going to have an ending. This side's going to argue... It wasn't there because if it was, it would have been in the older manuscripts. Then you have people that come in the middle and say, well, this church father quoted it, this church father didn't. And so you have this big debate. Now let's solve the issue. We don't know. But here's what we do know. It's in our Bible, so we'll deal with it. What is my personal opinion? It doesn't matter what my personal opinion is. Uh, my personal opinion in studying this was it was an addendum. This is not Mark's Greek. If, when you translate this passage, and, and you go to seminary, they will make you translate part of this book. You will have to translate the first part of Mark, and then when you translate verses 9 through 20, it's like a total change. And so, it seems to me like, much of like what happened in other places, what is called essential authorship, after the book was compiled, someone probably felt like this this gospel ended on a sour note, and they went and added something to it. Now, the big question becomes, is that inspired? Once again, save that question for Jesus. I don't know. But the bottom line is, 9 through 20 makes no difference doctrinally, to anything else in Scripture, zero. As a matter of fact, the summary that is given in 9 through 20 is an excellent summary of what happened. And it, when you really study the issue out, and I'm going to read it just so you can get the feel of it, uh, it's truth, okay? So we're going to deal with this truth, but my sermon is going to be basically based on 1 through 8, all right? So here's verse 9. I'm picking back up right in the middle of this sentence. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Now, notice what happens here. From whom he had cast out seven demons. Some people would point out, well, he's already mentioned Mary about eight times earlier. Why would he now explain to you that she's the woman he cast out? Because he's already written about that. Y'all see what people are talking about? Okay, I'm just pointing a few things out. She went and told those who had been with him, and they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. Now, which gospel writer talks about this account? Just say Luke. Luke? Okay, we'll get there next week. This is the two on the road to Emmaus. So he appeared to two walking in the country. And they went back and told the rest. But what? They didn't believe him. Is that true? You all say yes. Everything he said is true. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Is that true? You all say yes. We get that from the Gospel of John. Nothing's false here. Okay. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the Gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now hold on for there for a minute. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Does that mean that if you're not baptized, you won't be saved? Is that what it says? Well, let's read the next verse, because this clears the whole issue up, listen to what he says, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Why does he not say, whoever does not believe and be baptized? Because baptism was not an essential for salvation. However, in the first century, there was no such thing as an unknown, unbaptized believer. It was a mark As much as belief in Jesus, it was a mark of their identity in Christ. They were willing to submit to baptism. It was almost like they went hand in hand. And this is probably why Mark, this is putting at the end of his gospel. Because baptism with confession was basically one. Okay? So whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So the basis for justification or condemnation is what? Belief or unbelief. All right. Now, we get into a little trickiness here. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. Did we see that in the book of Acts? Say yes. They will speak in new languages. Did we see that in the book of Acts? Just say yes. They will pick up serpents with their hands. Now, I would like to have a little fun here. By the way, when I teach this, sometimes I have this little slinky snake that somebody bought me overseas, and I, I put it in a bag, and I, I rattle it, and I just sling it out. But uh, I did that one time. It landed near an older lady. I said I'd never, ever do that again because, like my wife, she got the spirit when, when a snake got around. So they will pick up serpents with their hands And what's the idea? They won't fear. Now, by the way, I was was born in McDowell County, West Virginia. People talk about this church all the time. It's in Jolo. Not Jello, Jolo. It was a little blue church. It was just a few miles from my grandparents' house. And this was a snake-handling church. It, It was backed in beside a creek. I could close my eyes and see it right now a little stream runs beside it I can remember being at my grandparents in the ambulance going by their home and thinking to ourselves what, what was that somebody's going to the snake handling church <laughs> they had gotten bit didn't have enough faith apparently and were infected with the poison so you know let me read the next one okay by the way I did not attend that church uh, <laughs> And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Uh, some of our students in the Middle East, I'm, I, I get a little facetious, y'all have to forgive me. You have to have fun, right? So they want to argue about all these spiritual gifts and whatever. I go get a bo- toilet bowl cleaner. I, this is awful, isn't it? Yeah, don't tell me that these gifts aren't operative. I go get a bowl of toilet bowl cleaner and I set it down and I say, there she is, if they drink it, it won't be poisonous. And they'll go. Now, that's not fair. <laughs> I mean, why? This is talking about the early followers when the signs, the miracles that were demonstrative, were authenticating the messenger. Now, let me say this. What we say is, we don't say God can't do something. God does whatever He wants to do. What we say is this. It is not, somebody cut me off it is not normative it is not normal that this happens okay it can but it's not something that happens all the time alright and that's where I land on this issue don't ever say God can't do something because God can but simply say this it's not normative God doesn't do that as as in every day okay this is my position you have to land on your own But I'm not going to drink any deadly poison. But back in the first century. If these believers were given poison to drink. Apparently. And you can read some of this. Christians were were being given poison to to try to kill them. And they would drink it. And they didn't die. So don't say that God can't protect people. Because he did. And he does. And he will. But. Don't be presumptuous and don't be foolish, okay? You grab a rattlesnake by the tail, it's going to bite you. And if it bites you, you're going to be going to the ER because it's going to hurt. And you're going to get sick. You drink deadly poison, you drink toilet cleaner, uh, you are going to be calling that place that pumps charcoal in you because you're going to be in major trouble. So, don't be foolish. But in certain situations, God did deliver. Okay, okay. Enough of that. It will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Did this happen in the book of Acts? Yes, it did multiple times. Did it not happen later on in the epistles? Yes, it did. Case in point, Epaphroditus was sick. The apostle Paul could not heal him. He didn't heal him. Almost let him die. Paul wrote about it and said if he would have died it would have crushed the rest of my spirit. So it seems there was a fading. Okay, I'm going to leave that there. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by the accompanying signs. Now, it seems obvious, folks, who this ending is designed for. Listen to what the ending says. They went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by these, what we just read, accompanying signs. So, the miracle authenticated the messenger and the message. All right? Okay, now, practically speaking, What do we learn from this account of Mark's resurrection? I've got just a few reflections or lessons or whatever you want to talk about that I think are very, very good for our life. The first lesson is this. It's not how you start, but it's how you finish that counts. Let me tell you a little bit about John Mark. And you, you can go back and read this. John Mark is first mentioned in Acts chapter 12... We don't know anything about his dad. This would make a great Mother's Day sermon, his mom. We don't know anything about his dad. Most people believe he was a Gentile. He's not mentioned. In Acts chapter 12, when Peter was put in jail, do you all remember this account? And the chains were released from him. He gets out of the prison and he runs and starts pounding on the door. You know whose house he was at? John Mark's mother and a little girl comes to the door and she goes, it's Peter, it's Peter. And they don't let him in and Peter keeps pounding. And then finally when they let him in, he, said, he tells them what happened. Then he had to leave because Peter thought he was going to be in trouble. So his mother obviously held a small group or a church meeting in her home. So here's this young kid. Then when you turn over into Acts chapter 12, Paul, because of this account, they brought John Mark with them. Now, by the way, he had two names, John, Mark. One of the reasons is you would have a Hebrew name, and then you have a, a, a Gentile name, John, Mark. So, he's referred to a, and Mark. In these instances, John would have been his what name? Hebrew, that's right. So, when you get over into Acts chapter 12, they wanted to take him with them. Well, John sails over, and he watches this demon-possessed man come out and tries to attack the Apostle Paul, and what does John do, Uh, John Mark? He probably wigs out. And so when Paul gets ready to travel up, John says, nope, I'm going back home. And when you read Acts chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, he left, he turned and left Paul and Barnabas and went back to his homeland. Then what happens? Later on, Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to pick ministry partners to go on another journey. And Barnabas said, I'd like to give John Mark another chance. And Paul said, not over my dead body. I don't take quitters with me. And Barnabas said, well, I'm going to. Not only is he my cousin, but I have faith in him. Well, what did Paul do? Paul said, no, you take him, I'll take Silas. Paul and Silas go one way. Barnabas and John Mark go another way. And what's the end of the story? Is Paul ever reconciled? Yes, he is. How do you know that? Colossians chapter 4, Paul makes these remarkable words. He says, bring Mark. He's profitable for my ministry. He's a hard worker. And Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 calls Mark, my son. So it appears that he was very faint in his early part of his life. But later, he came back and he was used greatly by God. The bottom line is, folks, don't let your past and bad, poor decisions in your past destroy your future fruitfulness for the Lord. Because in the Christian life, it really isn't how you start. It's how you finish. That's what matters. The second lesson that we learn is this. Jesus does not give up on his disciples... No matter how great their failure or how many their faults, now I am astounded when you look at verses nine through twenty and how many times it says he rebuked them for their unbelief. He rebuked them for their unbelief. <clears throat> Can I ask you a question this morning? Be be honest with yourself. Don't answer out loud. Do you ever struggle with belief? Do you? I mean, things happen in life. Things that we don't understand, we cannot explain. They seem wrong to us. They seem cruel to us. And somehow or another, in the back of our mind, we go, God, there's no way you could be real. There's no way you could be... Or if you are real, you're not doing a thing. And I don't really want to believe. Now, let me tell you something. I'll, I'll share this with you and be honest. Never rebuke someone when they say that or feel that. That is not wrong. God allows a lot of freedom for us to doubt. Did you know that? And one of the reasons that people don't feel like they can come to church is because if they have doubts, they feel like people look at them and judge them. Who are we to judge? You have doubts too. And if you don't have doubts, you've probably never been squeezed enough to where you really have to question and the remarkable thing about God and God's word is he leaves room for doubt but the great thing is is he's a whole lot bigger than our doubts you see here's the reason we judge God and his character based off of what we feel and what we see something a tragedy happens or we feel like something wasn't right. We feel like God did not do what He should have done or what He did in the lives of other people. And what do we do? We naturally doubt. And that results in unbelief. By the way, how is unbelief turned to belief? Confidence in the Word of God. That's how. Confidence. I've told you all this story many times I remember my older pastor coming to me. He was 80 years old. And I asked him when I was going to Bible college, I said, how much school should I get? He said, only enough to do you. He said, when you have enough to do you and you're able to do ministry, stop. I, I thought, that's odd. Why would he say that? He said, he said in, in my life experience, I have seen more people turned away from the faith because they get smarter than God. I didn't know what he was talking about. I was young and naive. I went off to Bible college. Finished my bachelor's. Dumber than a rock. Finished my master's. Still dumber than a rock. Got, got two more. Still dumber than a rock. Figured I had to go on. Finished. Still don't know anything. The bottom line is simply this. You will never know Everything. And as one man told me, he said, when you, you realize you have an education, when you realize you don't know everything, you can search and search and search, and there's not answers for everything. We don't have answers for everything in the Christian life. Stop trying to answer things that you don't know. Why did such and such die? You don't know. Why did such and such get sick? You don't know. Why did this? You don't know. Don't even try. Don't even try. Because we don't. We can't answer questions like that. So we simply submit ourselves to the unknowability of humanity and put ourselves in the arms of a God who knows it all, but He doesn't have to explain it to us. But one day, perhaps, in His mercy and grace, maybe God will explain things that are not made known to us. For example... Why would my dad be stricken with cancer at age 40? Do you realize, I could, when I was a young man, I was so angry at God for allowing my dad to get cancer my junior and senior year. I was furious. This really impacted my hateful little hard heart. I couldn't see that. Do you realize it took years and years of watching my dad to struggle, and then his death, but prior to his death, my dad revealed... What he believed was the purpose of his cancer. And this is what he said. It's the only way God could have ever gotten to me. And when I was a young man, I didn't know that. I'd never known it if my dad not said something. But just a little piece of a sliver. Now, what was God's plan? I don't know. But what I'm saying is, things that we don't understand, given enough time and seen from the right perspective we'll see that god was right okay one one commentator writes this we thus learn that with god our failure is not fatal but we cannot jump for joy and give one another high fives as members of winning sports teams do we constantly fail you hear me folks i'm with you in this we constantly fail in our life, in our ministry, we are sinners to the core. We are doubters. We are skeptics. We have a nature within us that does not want to believe. That's who you are. And God knows exactly who you are. You ready for this? And He loves you anyway. And He implants faith in your heart and enough faith... To believe his word and the gospel. And he saves your soul. And he grows you like a little baby into an adult. As you nurture yourself on the word of God. And fellowship with other believers. And walk together hand in hand through the struggles and the heartaches of life. And you learn to trust God even though you can't explain it or see it. And God continues to love us. We continue to fail. God continues to pick us up. We continue to fail. And that's how life goes. But notice what he says. We must humbly and consistently turn to God for help and can give only God the glory when failure turns into victory by divine power. I read that this week, and chills went from wrist up to neck. It was like, wow, this is so true about the human life. We do constantly fail. And God constantly gives grace and restoration. The third reflection, Jesus goes ahead of us and is faithful to his word. In Mark 16 verse 7, this is an interesting comment that is made here. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. If you turn back to Mark chapter 14, verse 28, what were our Lord's words? He writes this, uh, Jesus said to them, I want to read down, uh, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He had already told them, but they weren't ready to digest what he had said. I go back and read notes from back in my Bible college days. I misspelled everything. Do you all realize when I went to Bible college at age 28, I had only read one book in my life completely through. One. I had been all the way through high school and had got an associate's degree from another school. I had only read one book in my life. It was a Louis L'Amour Western one. I could not even find Ezekiel when I went to Bible college. I put thumb tabs on my Bible to mark out Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and my theology professor made fun of me. Second second day in class he walked by and he went take rip him things off your paper. Person, ought to be ashamed of themselves to have him on there. I said, well, I. Turn to Ezekiel. I'm over in the New Testament. Yeah, this is this is This is where I started. And thankfully, I had no shame in it. I mean, it was bad, but it's just where I was in life. I stopped and I began to see God's faithfulness in my life. And I poured myself into my studies. You can ask my dear wife, because she's the one who had to suffer for it. From daylight till after dark. Every day, hours and hours, I wore the library out, had my own, they used to joke with me about the library. It was my job and my calling. I read everything I could, studied everything I could, went above and beyond everything. I go back and read my notes, and I had written down things that they had shared with me, and I had it perfectly stated, I didn't have a clue what I wrote. I go back now and read it and go, you've got to be kidding me. Did I actually write that back then? I don't even remember it. And you know, that's exactly how life is. The Lord goes before us. He prepares us. And He leads us into the way that He wants us to go. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. And every day that you do something in your life, it's a calling. Did you know that? God gives you a calling in your vocation, just like He gives me a calling right here in this pulpit. So stop thinking that you're not a Christian or you're not in ministry because you're not preaching or doing something in a church from 10.30 to 12. Your vocation is your calling. That is your life. That is your ministry. And you are to take that and use that to the glory of God. And you are to serve Him in that. And Him first... And identify yourself as a Christian teacher, a Christian mechanic, a Christian computer designer, a Christian, go ahead and name it, whatever. That is what you are. I learned this from the people in Egypt. I would ask them in class, what do you do? Well, I'm a Christian first and I'm a doctor to support my Christian life. Mm, That was interesting. What do you do? Uh, I'm a Christian first, and I'm a stay-at-home mom. Really? Yes. I'm a Christian first, and then I teach in a school. Really? Their Christianity defined everything about their life. And I think the same should be true with us. The Lord is the one who goes ahead and does this for us. The fourth lesson, we must also respond to the resurrection news. Will we go and tell? Or will we be paralyzed by fear? Look in 16.8 again. If Matthew stops here, if it does, this is how it reads. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now some people say, There is no way that Mark could have stopped the gospel right there. Other people say, read his account. Yes, he could. Because he left it hanging for people who knew the rest of the story. Now, once again, you and I are not going to solve this issue, but here's the question I want to ask. What if the message did end right there? We know the story that he did rise. What would you have done if you were the eleven? Or you were the women. Or you were Peter. I love to hear people talk about how strong their faith was. Oh, if I could have only seen Jesus feed the 5,000, then I would do this and I would do... No, you wouldn't. If I could have just been there and watched His miracles, I would... No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. You would have been just like the rest of them. No, you don't know who I am. Oh, yes, I do. And that's why I can confidently say, just like myself, I would have probably been doubting John. But the interesting issue is, after all of these doubters and all of these skeptics, I mean, think about Thomas. We'll get to him in two weeks. Thomas, I saw Jesus rise from the dead. No, you didn't. Yes, we did. Oh, no, you didn't. I saw him slaughtered and put on a cross. There's no way he came back. I saw him. I won't believe him. Lest I take my finger and put in his nails that they drove in his wrist. Or my hand and put it up in that spear place in his side. I'm not going to believe it. You'll never convince me. And Jesus appears in the upper room on Sunday night. And says, hello Thomas. I heard your conversation by the way. You didn't even know I was present. Put her in there. Oh, and... Put it in there too. And Thomas just... And he says, The Lord of me and the God of me. My Lord and my God. No, there was no question. And then, not only doubting Thomas, but all the rest, Peter the denier, Jesus went right straight to him and asked him three times. He had denied him three Jesus asked him three times. He restored him. What are you going to do? You know what all these guys did? They went out and gave their life. And I'll read you an account when I get to John about how all of them died. Some burnt, some skinned, some hung upside down, some put in boiling oil, water. They suffered greatly. Why did they do that? Because they saw the resurrected Jesus. And they were willing to give their life for what they knew was true. And they died as martyrs to prove it. And so what's the bottom line? Were they paralyzed by fear? Or did they go out in faith? They went in faith. Read the Gospel of Acts. Read the account of how the disciples were so bold. In one place, the PhDs, the elders and Pharisees and scribes saw the, the, hillbillies, the them hillbillies from Galilee that had a funny accent. They were unlearned. They'd never been to school. And all the people were going after them because they were boldly preaching and proclaiming the truth that Jesus had raised from there. They didn't know what to do. What should we do? By the way, look at all the evidence and the truth that we have and all of this information. Now let me ask you this piercing question. In 2023, how many people have you and I told about the resurrected living Jesus? the one who came into your life and changed you from a selfish, self-centered husband into one who loves your wife sacrificially and is willing to sacrifice your desire for hers. How many of you have went and told how your love and your Jesus, who came into your life, changed you so much that you gave up something that you wanted to do so that you could pour more time into your children? Guys, that was for you. Ladies, how many of you have said, my Jesus has changed my life so much that my hateful, stubborn husband, I can submit to him as I do unto the Lord because I know he ain't the Lord. But I'm going to love him like Jesus told me to do that. And I'm going to pray for him that God will open his heart and that he'll follow Jesus So that I can lovingly and willingly follow Him. And I'm going to give up all my desires. And I'm going to give up all my plans and my admirations to do only what He calls me to do. It's not about me and my life. It's about Jesus who lives inside of me and has called me to be a servant. And you know, I'm going to tell you something. That is where the rubber really hits the road. Are we willing to sacrifice this life as a servant for the next life for reward? Or are we going to live it all in this life and have our reward? So that when we get to the next life, we've already had it all. I I mean, that's the question that you and I both have to ask. The final lesson is this. Jesus is alive. Amen? And those who believe have eternal life. Those who do not believe are condemned. Everyone hearing my voice sits in one of two places. You either have eternal life living inside of your spirit because you realized you were a sinner, your sin deserved judgment, Jesus took your judgment and your place, and you must put faith in His work on the cross as the payment for your salvation. And if you do that and you trust that by faith, according to God's Word, you will be saved. But if you don't, and you think that your own work or your own goodness or your own this or your own that is somehow going to merit, favor, earn, reward with God, according to the text, we're in unbelief and we are condemned. And you know, the issue is really not about evidence, If you really want to know whether Jesus rose from the dead, let me tell you something folks, overwhelming evidence. If you really want to know whether he was God or not, overwhelming evidence. The issue is about basically whether we love our sin more than we do Jesus. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil and they don't want to come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. So who do we love more? Our sin or our Savior? And that's what you have to decide. Father, thank You so much for Your Word this morning. I pray for every heart, every ear that hears that we would truly evaluate our eternal life. Have we put our faith and our trust and our hope in You for eternal life? And if anyone has not done that, Father, I pray that You would grant them the grace, open their heart, help them to understand that You're calling them, and help them to put their faith in You. And for those of us who have and do know You as Savior, Father, I pray that we would share this wonderful message with people all around us who struggle in life struggle with heartache and problems and pain help us to reach out in compassion and let them know that there's a God who cares and a Savior who died not just to give us a home in heaven but also to transform our life here and now help us to be your witnesses not to be paralyzed by fear Because ultimately, it's not rejection of us, it's rejection of you. So give us boldness and help us to be faithful. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I always want to say this, by the way, and I mean it from the bottom of my heart. If you struggle with your faith in Christ or you have questions about your salvation, come and find me. Come and find Brian. Pull us aside after the service on Sunday morning. We have two major missions, Brian and I. Number one, we want to connect with our guests and let you know we're thankful that you came. And number two, though, maybe both are the same, we want to help you in your spiritual life. So if you have struggles, you have questions, you have problems, come and see us. Tell us what they are. We don't know. We can't read your mind. We want to help you. We're here for you. God God brought us here for that reason. So let us know. All right? God bless you.